So today I want to tell you a funny story about the IRS. <laughs> Not that funny story, <laughs> which actually isn't really that funny, at least the IRS certainly doesn't think so right now. No, I'm talking about a funny story about the IRS from quite some time ago. Some of you may have heard the history or even have read about the history of the court case that Wes was involved in back in the day. It all started on April 13, 1955. That was about 11 years after Wes was first founded, when the Wes treasurer got a letter from an assessor. Not the kind of letter you want to get. You know, we get mail in the office all the time, and every once in a while we do get a letter that, you know, more than one staff person needs to gather around together to open the letter. And, and, and luckily, we haven't gotten a letter like this because of this particular court case. But April 13, 1955, the West Treasurer got a letter from an assessor saying that due to a decision by D.C.'s Corporation Council, Wes had been determined to be ineligible for exemption from taxation. Religious bodies are always considered tax-exempt in America, like nonprofits and educational institutions. And so essentially what the Corporation Council had decided was that West didn't qualify as a religious body, that we weren't a religion and therefore we had a lot of back taxes due. As our own history writes it, it was... Um, that this, this decision by D.C.'s Corporation Council was based, this is a quote, based upon non-acceptance of the ordinary definition of religion as a belief in a supreme being. And the history is written to go on, this challenge to the religious status of the Washington Ethical Society, indeed to the entire ethical movement, had to be met. And it was met. We hired a lawyer and went to the D.C. tax court where we lost, and then appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court as it kept going up. And so finally, in May 1957, that's almost two years after the original letter from the assessor, so you can just imagine the number of committee meetings that that involved from that first, right? Just have a moment for those, those folks on the board at the time and in the committees, how many meetings they must have gone to. Two years later, in 1957, 56 years ago, Judge Warren Berger, who at the time was a circuit court judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, wrote a decision which continues to be sort of the landmark decision on religious identity for non-theistic organizations all over the country. It's a beautifully written opinion of the court, actually. You can read the whole thing on Wikipedia. And I briefly considered quoting from it, but I thought maybe only my lawyer husband and the other lawyers would appreciate that, so I won't. What it boils down to is, Wes quacks like a duck, so it should get the tax exemption of a duck. Essentially, that Wes and other ethical societies are functionally religious bodies, and that they act and behave in people's lives and are held in people's lives, just like a religion. So they deserve to be treated as such by the government. It's a great story in Wes's history from our early years, and it has its own little colorful chapters. My favorite one, because it's very law and order, is, um, is that at a certain point, and actually in the first case, the one that we lost before D.C. Uh, tax court, um, folks came in with two suitcases filled to the brim with books and citations from the Library of Congress all about the world's religions that had uh, no, no theistic underpinnings or didn't require belief in a supreme being. So you can imagine 
Anyway, I like to imagine the lawyer coming in with these giant suitcases. And actually, the first time I heard the story, it was described as carts being pushed in, filled to the brim. So in another 30 years, I think probably we have a pickup truck driving into the tax, uh, the tax court full of all of these books. It's a story, too, of who stood with us in that time. There are amicus briefs, which you can also read from the American Ethical Union, of course, our parent body, but also from the American Unitarian Association and the American Jewish Committee, among others. And all of the people who supported a legal fund um, to cover the costs of that case as it went through those two years of tax court and then appeal to the circuit court. In a press release after the successful appeal to D.C. Circuit Court, the West President at the time, Jack Turin, wrote, While the cost of carrying this case through the courts was equivalent to a generation of tax payments demanded on our building, although I'm not actually sure I would agree with that. I'm really glad we don't pay taxes. The individuals and the organizations who contributed to this cause feel collectively that every cent of their contributions was well spent in this defense of religious freedom. Now, that court case was not the only time that Wes has been involved in the conversation about how the church and state interact, who defines what and how. There are actually a number of other times when Wes was involved either as a party to a case or filed amicus briefs. One of them that you may know about is Ray Torcaso, a member of Wes, who in 1960 fought the requirement at the time that to become a notary in Maryland, you had to pledge a particular belief, a particular kind of belief in God. And then the very first social justice issue that the society took on very early on, you know, it was founded in 1944 by just a few families. By 1947, they were working on what what the history calls a situation that soon developed in which the three factors of ethical concern, religion, education, and the arousing of moral indignation were all present. And that issue was that Arlington County had Bible classes in public schools at the time, and they were getting ready to bring it to the one kind of holdout, an elementary school in Fairlington. But there were two West families with children in that school. And so they wrote letters to the editor and appeared at public meetings and organized other parents trying to keep the Bible class from coming to that elementary school. And finally, the history says, the sponsoring body, which was the Arlington County Religious Education Council, finally they gave up on bringing the Bible class to that school because it was just too expensive to keep going to all of those things and trying to fight. So I think that's sort of a new social justice modality for us. Those ethical culturists, they talk enough and write enough to wear people down. (laughs) Something to be proud of. And then others through our history work on a nativity scene on the ellipse during the pageant of peace, work to make sure that Montgomery County didn't have prayer in schools, and then deeply important to many in this country, including my own father, work to um, extend conscientious objector status so that it could be based on ethical values and not just religious ones. So that work on the separation of church and state and the identity of religion in the state's eyes, that's been important to our own congregation literally since our founding. How about the movement? Today, as Mary mentioned in her meditation, ethical societies across the country are celebrating Founders Day. 
Ethical culture was founded in 1876, or at least that's the moment that we point to uh, one day in May when the 24- or 25-year-old Felix Adler, who had studied to be a rabbi but wanted to create something different, a movement based on a shared belief in ethics, as ethics as core and central to all religious traditions. As he stood before a packed house and kind of laid out what he thought that movement might look like. From the very beginning, Felix Adler saw that movement as responding to a national public crisis, as being involved in in the public square in a really deep and important way. In his founding address, he refers all the way back to the founding of this country. He wrote, or he, he spoke, when on the 30th of April, 1789, General Washington was for the first time inducted into the presidential office in this city of New York, he declared that the national policy would be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality. And he appealed, Adler went on, to the wisdom and integrity of those first legislators whom the country had chosen under its new constitution as a pledge and safeguard of the republic's future welfare Could he return to us now in this season of jubilation? How sadly altered would he find the condition of our affairs? That was Adler talking about Washington. That's not me talking about Adler, right? We're all all with me. I don't usually say jubilation. It's kind of a 19th century word. So, um, so, So Adler sort of starts the whole founding of ethical culture by talking about who we are as a nation, by talking about our public selves. He goes on to say that statesmen and philanthropists are busy suggesting remedies for the cure of these great evils, but they will all fail unless the root of the evil be attacked, unless the conscience of men be aroused, the confusion of right and wrong be checked, and the loftier purposes of our being again brought powerfully home to the hearts of the people. Basically... Adler founded what he thought would attack that root of the evil, a movement that he hoped would respond to what he saw as the major challenge of the day. The idea of materialism and secularism, people treated as just means to an end, and the failure, at the same time, of traditional religion to address the problem or to capture the imagination of the modern person. And so he founded this movement this religious tradition as a way of breaching the gulf between the secular and the religious, finding that peace that we could come together around, the idea of ethics as central. Now, I realize as I'm talking about all of this and talking about the movement and the religious tradition that we're part of, that even that word religious may be a little itchy for some of you. Based on a highly statistical survey of talking to people during coffee hour, I would say <laughs> roughly one quarter to one third of you are right now in your minds going, why is she talking about religion so much? I hate it when she does that. <laughs> right? Is that right? We're not going to do a show of hands. but. So for the purpose of this address, I ask you to to stay with me on that and to remember that when we can't agree on deep philosophical issues, we can always fall back on what the circuit court said. It doesn't have quite the same ring as, we'll always have Paris, but get the picture, we'll always have Warren Burger. However you would name what Felix Adler founded, what we do here at West, it does quack like a duck, I think that Judge Burger was right. It functions like a religious tradition, and specifically like a religious tradition with a voice in the public square. 
That idea of justice work in the public square, of the importance of going out into national policy, bringing religious and ethical values into that work has long been part of the ethical culture tradition. That's what we really hear in that founding address, the call to action in our country. And I certainly personally find a place for religion in the public square. Religion is usually what we name as articulating our deepest beliefs and values. And so, of course, for me, speaking from that place makes sense when I do justice work. And actually, often when I'm doing that work, I make sure that people can identify me as speaking from my religious values. Because I'm frequently doing work that folks with other different religious values might oppose. And so for me, it's important that people can articulate where it is that I'm coming from and what it means to me to have faith and be a person of faith. In my testimony a number of years ago now in support of marriage equality in D.C., I spoke about three three reasons that I thought we needed to bring marriage equality to, um, to the District of Columbia. One of them was personal, the marriage that I have with my husband and wanting all of my friends and family to be able to have that same protection legally. One of them was religious, my faith in the inherent worth of every person and, and the, the justice work that that faith calls me to. And then one was as an American citizen, my support for the separation of church and state and the importance of civil marriage, the idea that religion shouldn't intervene in government decisions. And even as I gave that testimony before the city council, I remember thinking that it was a slightly tricky position to maintain, to be a religious figure speaking to a government entity about how religious figures shouldn't have too much influence in government entities, right? And that's the line, I think, that that we walk and that folks within many liberal religious traditions have walked for generations. Not just ethical culture, although certainly strongly true for us. There have been a number of resolutions in the Unitarian Universalist Association and the American Ethical Union about the separation of church and state and how key that value is to the traditions. And they sound very similar and speak, I think, to something that would resonate for us. The Unitarian Universalist Association's resolution talks about the constitutional principles of religious liberty and the separation of church and state that safeguards liberty and the ideal of a pluralistic society. And the American Ethical, American Ethical Union resolution talks about the maintenance of the separation of church and state in every area as of paramount importance for the ensuring of the religious freedom of all individuals. Those are only two of a number of resolutions over the years that all say essentially the same thing, that part of our religious tradition is supporting the freedom of religious tradition for everybody and supporting supporting the plurality of religious traditions in America. Another organization that came out of both of those movements is Americans for Religious Liberty, an organization that I've been privileged to serve in a small capacity on the board, and we're honored to have the president of Americans for Religious Liberty here, uh, Ed Dorr. I'm just going to ask Ed to wave. You can st- actually, you can stand so people can see you. Thanks. ARL, as it's called, was created by ethical culture leader Ed Erickson, who was at the time serving the New York Society, but before that had been leader of this society here in Washington. Unitarian Universalist Minister Bruce Southworth and Rabbi Sherwin Wine, sort of like a joke. An ethical culture leader, a UU minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar, 
and form a group to preserve religious freedom, which I guess makes us really earnest and well-intentioned, which is true. ARL is based in Washington, and our own Herb Blinder, who was a member of West for many, many years, um, and and a, a passionate fighter for justice issues of all kinds, was very involved. And it's thanks to Herb and Ed's recommendations that I ended up getting involved. And now ARL works on key, the key issues of reproductive justice and school vouchers, some of the ways in which the separation of church and state issue has a real effect on people's lives today. But still, I wonder, you know, how separate we want them and what it really means to be separate. There's plenty of conversation about that, as you can imagine, on the right and on the left and the center, if there is a center anymore, about the role of religion in public life, about how to interpret those few words in the Constitution. And so I looked him up, and I will quote that to you. I think even the non-lawyers will like constitutional quoting. So here's what it says in the, in the Constitution in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then it goes on, and we have, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But it's really just that first clause, those those, what is it, nine words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Of course, everybody agrees that that's the clause. Those are the words. The devil, so to speak, is in the details. What most church-state separation folks would say, and I certainly consider myself one, is that this clause both protects religions by allowing them to freely exercise their faith, and also protects the state from religion, keeps it from having a religion become part of the government. And so the religious values that are expressed individually in the public square are just fine, but they're not mandated by the public square, those religious values. They're not financed or supported by the government. Now, there are folks that would say the very tax exemption that West fought for is a kind of financing of religion by the government. My father, actually, is one of those people, makes for kind of interesting conversations uh, on occasion. And the Secular Coalition for America is another. That's an organization nationally of which the American Ethical Union is a part. I like to think we're kind of like a thorn-in-the-side part of the Secular Coalition for America because that's not my feeling. That's not how I interpret those. But you can see how that one little clause is open to interpretation. On the other side of the spectrum, there are folks who say that the clause, since it says that Congress cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion, should allow for prayer time and sponsored Christian groups and public schools. After all, isn't that just a free expression of belief? It is, as I said, a tricky line for liberal religious people to walk, but such an important one. To be the religious voice that calls for the separation of church and state. The way that we are one of the religious voices that want our own free exercise of religion, thank you very much, but also believe strongly in not establishing a religion, even if it were ours. I do think that last part can be a little tricky for us sometimes, especially within ethical culture, where we see ourselves occasionally as kind of beyond religion, or not part of religion, but just about ethics, and really doesn't everybody like ethics. So maybe ethical culture should be a national identity. Wouldn't it be great? In the founding address, Adler called ethical culture that practical religion from which none dissents, 
which I actually think sort of does sound like taken out of context and all by itself a call to a governmental uh, religion. But like any philosophy, a way of life, any religion, we do believe certain things in ethical culture, particular values, but also particular faith, that faith in human worth, in human goodness, and the forward progress of humanity and justice. And indeed, I think it's it's exactly by claiming that faith, by claiming that those are ideas of faith and that they speak to our religious voice and that we're inspired by the values behind them that we do our best work in the public square, including protecting that square from the establishment of any religion. And so thinking about that line we walk, about the way that we are a religious voice calling for for the protection of government from religion as well as the protection of religion from government, I close with words from someone deeply inspired by his own faith and also deeply committed to the separation of church and state. From John F. Kennedy's speech in 1960 during his candidacy for president given to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association. And I invite you to listen in his words for his strong support of religious freedom and the two things that that means, a government free from religion and a country free for religion. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might protect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. And he goes on, Finally, I believe in an America where religious intolerance will someday end, where all men in all churches are treated as equal, where every man has the same right to attend or not attend the church of his choice, where there is no Catholic vote, no anti-Catholic vote, no block voting of any kind, and where Catholics, Protestants, and Jews at both the lay and pastoral level will refrain from those attitudes of disdain and division which have so often marred their works in the past and promote instead the American ideal of brotherhood. A government free from religion and a country free for religion Since its very founding, West has fought court battles for both of those things. For the right for people to become notaries without a test for belief, for public spaces to be free from religious ornamentation, and also for our own community to call itself, to know itself, and be known as a religious congregation. And let me tell you, it's not just about the taxes.